I think we're, um, I think our 10 minutes is up. Am I right? I didn't actually look, but I think it is. I know this is quite a grind. You guys are awesome. Thank you for being here. I just don't want you to miss out on anything. We have a special treat, um, Dr. Greg Ryan, who is um, a colleague of mine. He and I are in practice together over at Whitestone Associates um, on Oak Ridge Drive. Um, Greg is a licensed psychologist. He's also a school psychologist. Um, Greg got his, his doctorate from Wheaton University up in Illinois, and um, he is the brother of one of the pastors here, Chris Ryan, another guy that I think is awesome. Um, Greg and his wife, Joy, are amazing people. Joy was on staff here as well in the uh, high school department. Mm-hmm. Student ministry. Student ministry. Girls ministry. And um, they have three amazing children. Their oldest um, was diagnosed with leukemia at what age? 13 months. 13 months. Yeah. And um, they went through quite a arduous and painful and challenging chapter with him. As of September? September 19th, September. he finished his treatment, and he is leukemia-free. But it was a long three years, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, you will love Greg. He is a wealth of information, um, a stout and hearty soul, as uh, in, in the language that we were just talking about in terms of trauma. And... Um, you're going to really be blessed by what he has to share about parenting. There's many more things I could say about him, but in the interest of time, come on up, Greg. You give him a warm welcome, All right. please. Thank you guys so much. I'm very glad to be here, and certainly um, in a kindred spirit with you guys, knowing that uh, pursuing lay counseling in, in an effort to want to help those of our congregation and to be a part of the healing process um, for people here that you go to church with is certainly an admirable thing and something that obviously is I've chosen as a profession. So uh, it's my pleasure to be here today and to speak about parenting in 45 minutes. <laughs> right, or less. I always love coming in on the tail end of a day too, you know. Everybody's eyes are kind of glazed over. You're thinking about, where are we going to eat dinner? Do I really want to cook tonight? No, let's just go out. I'm exhausted emotionally. Why am I even... Here listening, and some of you are making grocery lists and everything right now, thinking about tomorrow. So, j- just to clarify, Greg, yeah. you do have we do have until three thirty, so I know, you have more I than forty five yeah. minutes. I know, right? Just, I'm just, just want to make kidding. sure. Being <laughs> facetious. So, uh-huh. what we'll do is that I'll probably try to break it into thirty to forty minute chunks and give us a little break in there and give you plenty of time for Q and A. And as far as with question and answer, um, you know, uh, I'll do my best to answer them. And sometimes there's lots of loaded questions that people love to give, uh, many times hoping to hear a certain answer. So then they're like, that way I don't have to actually call you and make an appointment if you just go ahead and tell me right here. So um, I'll do my very best to, to answer that question as best I can. So um, you guys have already seen and touched on this model, right, somewhat? I just wanted to kind of go through this as our framework today with discussing parenting. Um, I think it's uh, obviously very valuable, um, biblically based, in helping us really understand that process of growth for a child and also growth for us as parents. Um, As Paul said, I have uh, three um, lovely, beautiful children, uh, four, three, and one. 
Um, so we have a, a little bit of chaos in our house, and my beautiful wife, Joy, who is also here today, and she is um, studying to uh, get her LPC from Sam Houston State University, so she'll be doing this, and we'll be doing this together some in the future. Um, but it's, it's fun, certainly, we really uh, value being authentic parents, parents that are willing to share our struggles with one another, to own up to the fact that we're not perfect, we don't have it figured out, and if it wasn't for God's grace, uh, we certainly wouldn't be equipped to even be parents. And so that's a big part of what you'll hear is a common thread through everything that I say today is embracing God's grace as to what it means to be a parent. And for you as lay counselors, even if, it's, uh, if you're taking away something for yourself today or if you're going to be using this information to assist someone in a lay counseling opportunity, you know, you don't necessarily work with children, but um, you're certainly going to be working with adults who have children and have frustrations with their children. So uh, I definitely want to, uh, this to be a valuable experience for you guys. But as Paul said, you know, this notion of uh, my, my son who was diagnosed with leukemia at 13 uh, months of age and is leukemia-free, praise God, and we give him all the glory for that. Uh, one of the things that we really saw in that journey is that we came into uh, being parents really thinking that we had it figured out, you know. I, I got my doctorate from Wheaton. I know a lot about child development, you know. I'm right in there. We got it all. It's a formula. I can lay it all out, and it's, everything's going to turn out beautifully. And then talk about being slapped in the face with this massive amount of uncertainty and this feeling of God not only... Is it not going to play the way that I wanted it to, hopefully, but, you know, I just, I hope that you spare my child's life and that you give him the opportunity to be here um, and that we have that chance to, to be his parent. And through that process, we often were asking the question, why? Why us? Why now? Why this? Why are we specially equipped to deal with this situation? We're not. One of the things that people often said in that situation was, how do you do it? You guys are amazing. You know, you're uh, something that we aspire to be. And they're just like, you would do the same in the same situation. You would take your child to the appointments. You would reach out to your community. You would try to hold out hope as best you can. We are not equipped with anything special, but we know where to turn to. Um, <clears throat> with, when you look at your handouts and in that, that process of uh, asking why and being able to come to terms with the fact that as parents, we don't have it all figured out, You'll really see from me and my perspective when I talk with parents, that's an important part of what I communicate each and every day. So I wanted to start with you guys. You have, I believe, a little parenting assessment at the front. That's for you to look at, but for the sake of time, we're not going to go into that real in-depth at this point. Um, but I believe you have that at the very, very front of your, your handout. Uh, what I did want to start with were just some basic notions of of parenting and, and knowing more about what is your parenting style. And when you're talking with parents, it's good to have some basic lingo and knowledge in place to know how it is that you want to assist them and how it is that you want to provide guidance to them. So when we, when we look at this notion of, um, of our parenting style, we have the authoritative parenting. Common books that are out there now, we see Boundaries with Kids. Love that book. Parenting with Love and Logic. How many of you guys are familiar with that book? It's a great book. Um, Scream-free parenting, another personal favorite. Have a, a good story with that. Um, that's another. That's another parenting approach that really a book that takes in the perspective of the authoritative parenting style. 
And when I look at authoritative parenting, we see that this is characterized by high expectations for compliance and parental rules, uh, to parental rules and directions, and an open dialogue about those rules and behaviors, and a child-centered approach that is characterized by open dialogue that is warm and positive and imbued with positive affect. We know overall that we want to, as authoritative parents, to help our child be independent. We don't want to be overbearing. We don't want, them to, we don't want to control them. We want them to explore the world freely and to learn what it means to make mistakes and to pick themselves up and dust off their knees and move on. What do we see? Kids from those backgrounds ultimately have a higher self-esteem. They are independent and quite happy. Contrary to that, we have the authoritarian parenting style, and that's more the militaristic style. Um, that's one in which that the parents is, it's my rule and my rule stands alone. There's no discussion. There's no open dialogue. Ultimately, you're going to do what I said because I said to do it. And we see that the kids that come from this ultimately lack social competence. They have difficulty problem solving. They're poor explorers of the world and oftentimes lack curiosity. You know, it's uh, interesting, though, that at times I would say, I strive to be that authoritative parent, the one that's going to be giving guidance and direction, at the same time um, being very firm with the limits that I'm setting with my child, but walking alongside them and, and hoping to give guidance as needed. But I'm guilty of being the authoritarian parent, too. And I actually asked my wife if I could tell this story, because it's a great one, and so she gave permission to, to go ahead and say this. But one of the things that, yes... I scream at my children periodically. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not always talking in the calm, therapeutic voice that's perfect and nurturing and come along, child, let's gather around and discuss what happened and what your choices may be. <clears throat> you know, I, I would hope someone would slap me around and say, that's so fake. Um, <clears throat> but one of the things that was funny, my wife was telling me, and I was, uh, I was actually away at work, and so we communicate um, throughout the day. And I was away um, consulting, but she was, you know, telling me that uh, our middle child, Adrian, who's three years old, is quite persistent. And one of the things that she has learned the art of is that if I say something not just 20 times, but 2,000 times, eventually I get a response. We'd love to do some sort of count to see how many times. Uh, well, the whining, of course, you know, we all love whining, right? It's like nails on the chalkboard, and it is that way for my wife and I especially, well, she was in the midst of whining and, and droning on about something, and so Joy just had to look away and, <laughs> like, oh, peace be with me, God, this is overwhelming me. And so, of course, then Adrian melts down and just, oh, you know, I'm so in love. Well, <clears throat> she had a chance to take a little break, and Joy had a, had a chance to talk to her and say, Adrian, I am so sorry that uh, I screamed. You know how hard it is that whenever you whine, tell me something. Um, what happens whenever you whine? You know, and she was trying to say, I have to go to timeout. That's what she was trying to get from her. And she was like, Mommy screams. <laughs> so she's like, That's right. That's right. You know, that time, Mommy screamed. But tell me, you know, what's something else that happens? I'll go to timeout. Uh huh. And that's right, you know, I did scream that time, and because sometimes that makes me really frustrated. When I'm frustrated, sometimes I scream. And she's like, yes, you do, Mommy. Yes, you do. <laughs> like, I'm going to make my point. I know you want to try to get me to say something else, but you're a screamer, you know. 
<clears throat> so you can see in that situation when we strive to obviously have that different model of parenting, one, that we know we have the head knowledge, right? We have the head knowledge that this is going to be a more effective approach to be able to problem solve with my child, to teach them those skills. Ultimately, what gets in the way? Our sin. We are sinful. We, we, are, we come into this world as sinful human beings, and if it was not, again, for the grace of God, certainly I wouldn't be able to go back to admit my mistake to my child, to have an opportunity to say, let's learn from this together. I'm not perfect. I don't have it all figured out. Let's look at permissive parenting. Permissive parenting is characterized by having the behavioral, uh, few behavioral expectations for your child and is mostly characterized by warm affect. You know, what's interesting in my studies... Um, one of the things I learned is that those with doctoral degrees end up tend to be more permissive parents. So, you know, I often wonder that. I, I think by nature we are not permissive parents. We have high expectations for our kids. But part of that is, is it really kind of begs the question as to, to why. And I think part of that can be is that um, the expectation that the child knows more and is capable of more than what they are at the, where they are developmentally. You know, it's important to be able to give limits and to have limits that you put forth for a child. And we're going to talk about um, how you're going to be communicating with parents about ways to do that more effectively. But so when we see a, a permissive parent that ultimately when the child gets in trouble, what do we see? It's their fault. It's someone else's fault. We see a lack of personal responsibility. And ultimately, we know that's not effective for life and for um, their future. Let's look at the outcomes. So when you see all the research with those three main parenting styles, dismissive parent is another one, and that's really one that's uh, mostly reflective of neglect. Um, but when we see that, a strong benefit to authoritative parenting, more self-discipline for a child, more emotional self-control, more friends, and better school performance. The reason being is that you're helping that child learn to think and act for themselves with a great deg degree of empathy and personal responsibility. Now, let's talk a little bit. We've talked from that standpoint about what it means to be the parent and what it is that I'm communicating as a parent in the way I'm relating to my child. But we also know that there's someone that, this, that God has brought into your life, and that's the child themselves. And that's who God created them to be. Let's look at that in this issue of bonding. So the child comes into our life, And many times we have our hopes and expectations and dreams about who that child will be, what they'll become, what they'll look like. You know, I remember one of the things that we had hoped for was just that our child would be cute. I mean, very basic. We're like, what if they're ugly? What are we going to do? Um, <laughs> and I'm kidding, of course, because it, our child would be beautiful to us regardless. But that is one of those just gut-level honesty kind of discussions we had, and I'm sure you all have too. Uh, before you had kids, if you've had children. So, but when we look at that overall, I want to see how is it that when this child comes into my life that I'm making an attempt to connect with that child. I have my expectations and what I'm hoping for, then I have who they are and who they were created to be. My ability to attune to my child depends on their personality and temperament. We're going to talk more about temperament. Important um, important thing that we need to learn more about, I believe, and I'm studying more about all the time as, as it affects parenting, how easy or difficult it is for us to relate to a particular child, the child's stage of development, and our own individual personality traits and our own family upbringing. We're going to talk more about that because that will really relate to what you do as a lay counselor. Let's start with just the nature versus nurture debate. 
You know, with the, um, the gains that we've made in the scientific community, what have we seen with things like the Human Genome Project and the significant amount of genetic mapping? is that ultimately, and I have no doubt, and I truly don't believe that in any of our lifetimes that we'll see um, that science will have it all figured out. You know, ultimately we know that God is the creator uh, and has given us the complexity um, here in our world. And one of the things I think about when it comes to science, though, is that it really helps us understand more as much as we can without obviously knowing the mind of God. But when you look at the Human Genome Project and the way that things are mapped out, you're seeing things... Um, like more of an indication now, and they're getting closer and closer to, and one of my areas of specialty currently is autism and autism spectrum disorders, is that you're getting a huge amounts of resources and money put into looking at genetic markers for autism. Um, and I believe probably in the next 15 years or so, we'll see some clear indicators. There's even looking at that um, starting as, as early as six to eight months of age trying to identify autism by looking at EEGs. Um, and this, you know, is kind of some cutting-edge stuff that's out there. Uh, but what do we see in terms of the uh, nature component is that there's some inheritability. There's some things that my child was given that I've passed on to them um, that I'm going to have to learn how to, to deal with. And some of them are things that I might not have wanted to pass on, right, that I'm somehow giving on to them. And then there's the nurture component. When we look at this, it's what I do as a parent. It's how I'm raising my child, how I respond to them, how I discipline them, how I love them. One of the things that I see all the time, and I really try to communicate to parents, we overemphasize this nurture component, and we downplay the nature component. My child has a genetic makeup, and part of that genetic makeup is, is that they, too, are sinful. And they, too, come into this world with the capacity to sin and to make mistakes. And oftentimes when I talk with parents, they're coming because they're blaming themselves, automatically saying, I'm the reason why my child is this way. I'm the reason why my child has made the decisions that they've made. You know, how old is your child now? Well, he's 21, you know? And if, if I just would have done something differently, I don't think that would have happened. That's... And, and one of the things that's a hard discussion is to say, you're giving yourself way too much credit, <laughs> right? Which is, it's really hard to hear that as a parent. Wait, wait, what do you mean? You know, we're not puppet masters. I'm a huge believer that we are not engineers of our children's fate, but we are facilitators. We are entrusted with this child by God, and we do our best to build up around them, to give the support that we can, to lead them in the right direction, you know, but ultimately, what do we know? By the time my child is a teenager, my true hard task of intensive parenting has already been done at that point. And I'm being a guide and a facilitator as best I can with the community I have around me and the family that I have there with me in my home. So when we look at this nature versus, versus nurture component, I think it's a, a critical, critical thing to be able to look at who is my child created to be? Who has God made them to be? And that could be aside from what I do as a parent, right? Now, when we see this notion of temperament, as I mentioned, that is going to be my uh, inborn differences in our children, their reactivity, how they respond to the environment, how easily soothed they are, and how intense they are emotionally. You know, in 1956, there was a, um, in New York a longitudinal study done with 100 children that followed them through infancy through early adulthood and looked primarily through clinical interviews as a way of being able to um, 
look at this notion of a goodness of fit between the individual child and his or her environment. And they came up with nine areas as related to temperament, which are really, um, you'll see some difference in the literature now, but these are pretty common. Activity level, regularity in biological functions like eating and sleeping, the tendency to approach or withdraw, adaptability, threshold of responsiveness. That's going to be how much stimulation does it require to evoke a response or how little stimulation does it require. You know, my son is one that if his shorts are touching his knees too often, then it's meltdown city, you know. <laughs> it's just like, oh, no. It was funny at the park the other day, uh, one of the things that he was uh, running and he kind of tripped and then he fell and had a little uh, scratch on his elbow and one of the things, one of the things that he immediately shot up and said, and just with his, you know, most cheerful voice, I need to go to the hospital. <laughs> like, none of you here are equipped to handle this. I need to go get some sutures in this. You know, and I'm like, only a child who's had as much exposure to a hospital would automatically think that. You know, let's like bypass the pediatrician. I need to go straight to the ER down at MD Anderson. <clears throat> So we see that, you know, intensity and energy level of reactions, which at times for a parent, if I myself have that high level of intensity and my child comes in, and this is part of who they were created to be, and they have that same high intensity, what do we usually see? <laughs> right? We can see fireworks. Our fuse tends to become tiny if infinitesimal. It goes off very quickly. And we also see quality of mood, distractibility, and attention span. Does my child tend to be constant move? And that doesn't necessarily, that's not meaning ADHD. That's meaning a child who by nature moves, has a high level of activity. And then also persistence. Persistence is absolutely key as a function of temperament. The reason I like to focus on that is that that really relates to the strong will child. One of the most common reasons why I get a referral from, uh, you know, for parents who want to come and talk about their kids um, is this issue of oppositionality is that degree, high degree of persistence. Their child, you know, early on, and we kind of go through the background and have a chance to hear more about their development and their early development. One of the things that I often hear is that it was my way. Early on, first few words, mine, I do it, right? And for a lot of those parents, especially if you have a high degree of control and need for control yourself, that creates a pretty dramatic situation to where there is constant fighting, right? There's just the constant rub all of the time. And I think it's important to know this, and this is one of the reasons why when I work with parents, I make a point to really emphasize this notion of temperament because it's important to know who did God create my child to be? What gifts, and these are gifts, by the way. Persistence can be a gift. Think about leaders. Think about people that uh, are in a position where they're impacting other people's lives or someone who's working in social services who has to go through tremendous amounts of red tape to be able to help those. Think about any of us in a ministry opportunity when you're left with very few resources, yet what keeps you driven to touch other people's lives? Many times those people have a high degree of persistence. It can be a great gift. It absolutely can. But let's look overall from this study when they look at this uh, 100 children over 30 years, uh, or 25 years. We developed the easy category. That was about 40% of the sample. These were infants that are, typically are calm 
and consistently easy to soothe. The difficult category, that's about 10% of the children in which they were called difficult uh, because they had irregular patterns of eating and sleeping, withdrew negatively to new stimuli, didn't adapt easily to change, and were of intense mood, which was often negative. Babies in this category are fussy and hard to comfort. And I'm sure many of you can relate to having um, children or having friends who have children who fit this category. It's very, very difficult as a parent. You know, and that's one of the things, and I told you I worked with autism spectrum disorders quite a bit now, and one of the additional certification I'm, certification I'm pursuing is to be a board-certified behavior analyst and, uh, <clears throat> and utilizing principles of applied behavior analysis. But this right here is exactly what parents of children um, on the autism spectrum say, is that no matter what I do, I can bring my child no comfort. Can you imagine being in that position, how frustrating that is, how debilitating that is? That as your child cries and you're unable to figure out what is happening in this child's sensory world or what happened with their routine that we changed, I cannot be attuned to it. And that's ultimately what my wife and I felt with my son James, going through a lot of the treatment that he went, to, went through with the, the needle pokes and the chemicals and the chemo that was pumped into his body, we're left with we can do nothing to bring our child peace. Think about the frustration that a parent is going to feel. Part of our job as counselors is to really be able to mirror that and to say how tremendously frustrated you must feel. I can see that you feel tremendously overwhelmed. What's getting you through? What's helping you walk through this time right now? I could tell this is really hard. Parents need to hear that. They need to know that they don't need to feel bad for the fact that my child might have a temperament or a makeup that is challenging. Then we see the slow to warm up category. This is about 15%. These children tended to withdraw negatively from new stimuli and had difficulty adapting to change, but their reactions were of mild intensity and would gradually become neutral or positive with repeated exposures to the new event or item. That ultimately, these are the fearful child. They're shy and weary of new experiences. You know, one of the things that I... Um, and, with my, with my son and my daughter, and part of it's developmentally appropriate, but definitely we see this, and you know, even had an uh, example of that going to uh, McDonald's. You know, we got dessert for the whole family for $2.70, whoop. <laughs> but we had a chance to go to the slide, which is like a behemoth. You know, our kids are used to the Chick-fil-A thing, but I don't know if you've ever been to McDonald's recently, but it's absolutely like a rat's maze up there. And so, you know, our kids, one at a time, <laughs> went into the maze, and you hear this cry for help that sounded faint and in the distance. I can't get out. Someone come help me. And then, of course, there was like that, I'm not going back in there ever again. So we were able to talk, and I'm going to tell you, a little, you guys a little bit more about this, but is the, this notion of scaffolding. How do you build up support around a child to help them have the confidence when they need you as that secure base? They need you as that parent to be there to give some of that guidance and direction. And that really doesn't stop even through adulthood for a child who is in this slow to warm up category. I might have to provide some of that guidance, but I want to be careful not to do for, right? What am I doing at that point? I'm enabling. I'm doing for a child who, another situation, 35-year-old, loves gaming, still at home, being enabled. Every parent's fear, right? I know. So when we see this, what came out of this overall was this notion of goodness of fit. 
That is, the temperament of the child alone was not the most important consideration of the child's growth and development, but the extent, and this is key, but the extent to which that temperament fit with the value, expectations, and style of the child's family. The value, expectations, and style of the child's family. That's this idea of goodness of fit. And ultimately, when we talk about from parent to parent or from counselor to parent, it's going to be important to really know this. It doesn't sound like that you, you feel like you and your child can really sync, that you're having a hard time connecting with your child. What is it that we can learn more about your child that would help you connect with them more? Who is it that God created them to be? Let's think about some of those inborn characteristics. What part of you and what part of their father do they have? And then what is it that God has uniquely put in them with that makeup? You know, but overall, I think it's important to see, and we talked about these different categories, and the remainder of it is mixed, right? You see a child who is going to be the easy category, but at times can be slow to warm up, and you'll see kind of a mixture of that, and that's going to be more typical. That's the majority. But we see that this can also be impacted. This is not a mold in which we say, because we know that God is bigger than that, that I'm not stamped out to be a certain way, and that's the only way that I can be. That ultimately, as parents, through this notion of attachment, that I can change and affect and impact my child's growth and development. When we look at the different types of attachment, ultimately, what do we see? That as, a, as my child is connecting with me, what am I helping them see? I am a secure base. I will not leave you as very young children. I will be present for you to be able to explore the world, to move out, to go away, and to come back safely to if you need to. And what do we start to do as the child gets older? We start to move a little bit further away. We're building confidence. We're going to talk a little bit about that principle here in just a little bit. The different types of attachment that are good, just for sake of time, I don't want to, to overdo it, but we have in secure, anxious, ambivalent, and avoidant are the, really the main types of attachment. And we see with secure that these are children that are readily um, able to separate, uh, to explore. They want to share in the play behavior of others. They're friendly to strangers in mom's presence, right? Not the, ch the child that will just walk away with anyone. And upon reunion, when the parent leaves and the parent comes back, they actively seek contact. And they especially are easily comforted when distressed. That I have the opportunity to feel connected that I know that you're here and you're helping me feel better. Let's look at the anxious ambivalent. This is the child who has difficulty separating, separation anxiety. That there's a poverty of exploration because of the fear of the unknown. Can't step out. I don't know what's going to be out there. I'm not going to be okay. And upon reunion, when separated from the parent, they have difficulty being comforted. And oftentimes you see mixed behavior. I'm not going to run right back to you because I don't know if I can trust you. Then we have the avoidant type. They'll readily separate, little sharing and play, friendly to a stranger in mom's absence, and a lack of a secure base, so may seek uh, that elsewhere. They actively avoid contact with parents many times. Now let's talk about how does that child develop any sense of attachment, and how do we do that early on? You know, one of the things I think is really uh, important is this notion of attunement in which I'm trying to really have a sense of who has God created my child to be, 
what is it that I have within myself in terms of how I'm trying to relate to my child, and now how am I trying to attune to that child? How am I trying to make connections and to, to draw them in and to, to, to bond with them? You know, and one of the things I really see that with that that's important is that when you look at this notion of attachment, I had a colleague who I went to school with, and her dissertation was on attachment um, to God. And one of the things that she found in her research, and I think it comes as no surprise, I love that when many times we do research and people are like, duh, you know, like, <laughs> thanks for putting that in a 400-page paper, I got it, um, <clears throat> is that many times the children's first impression of God and their first view of God is from that early relationship that they've established with a parent. And who they believe God to be, many times, is from the message that they're receiving from that parent. Uh, and I think that's an important thing, that as you talk to parents, and since you're not really necessarily working with them on that issue 100%, what did you learn, mom or dad, about God from how you were raised? Because what do we see? What are they, in turn, then passing on to their child? Did you learn grace? Did you learn shame? Do you have to be perfect to be loved? Those are important questions to be asking, and that's a, an essential part of attunement. As we move from this notion of bonding, coming into separation, what do we see? This is where our youngest, Rachel, is very strong right here with the no. She's uh, um, one and a half. And one of the things that we see with this is the terrible twos and temper tantrums. And do temper tantrums end with two years old? No. Yeah. Some of you are like, I had a tantrum last night. And it was quite powerful, and it worked for me. <clears throat> but what we see is that the, the notion of a tantrum, and there, there's an important principle, I think, and I, I love to talk about this one because this is really an essential thing for all of us to understand in terms of just related to human behavior is this notion of an extinction burst. How many of you guys are familiar with that term, extinction burst? Anybody? Well, this will be good. Yeah. Paul's like, me? Okay. <clears throat> One of the things that we see with a pattern of behavior, particularly with young children, is that we want to look at a pattern of behavior that has consistently been reinforced. Have an example. Um, my middle daughter, Adrian, who is quite persistent, as I said, in the car, as soon as Joy and I start having a conversation, excuse me, Daddy, excuse me, Daddy, because we've taught her to say excuse me, which is the polite thing to say, right? Excuse me, Daddy, excuse me, Daddy, excuse me, Daddy. And Joy and I are talking to each other, and at this point I say, Joy, I don't even know what it is that I'm even saying anymore, but I refuse to stop talking because as soon as I do, I'm going to be reinforcing that behavior. So at this point, we're just blah, 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 pause. Your turn. Excuse me, Daddy. Yes, thank you for waiting, right? One of the things that we saw is that is the more that she's saying, excuse me, if I tend to, if I attend to that, I'm reinforcing that behavior, correct? Because what is she seeking? Attention. So the more, that, the more that she starts to escalate that behavior and the more that she starts to, excuse me, daddy, excuse me, daddy, excuse me, daddy, excuse me, daddy, if I finally go, what? For the love of Pete, would you leave me alone? This is ridiculous. Gotcha, you know? Yes. Victory is mine. Kids learn this early on, don't they? Uh, so one of the things that we really have to make a point to do 
is that when I think about this pattern of reinforcement, is to look, what behavior am I trying to see improve or increase? Oftentimes as parents, we're looking at it and we're saying, I just want to squash this one. You know, if I asked parents, I said, what is it that you would like to see change in your relationship with your child? I want them to stop whining. I want them to eat varied foods. I want them to go to bed when I say go to bed. I want them to, you know, control, 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 be what I want them to be, right? And then ultimately, what are we missing? I'm not hearing what are you wanting to see more of that's appropriate. What's going to be replacing those behaviors? And so with this, what I, what I want to make a point to do is to give, in this case, my daughter a way to be able to get my attention more appropriately. Whenever I hear a pause in conversation, that's the time that I'll get my dad's attention when I say, excuse me. And so we try to give her that opportunity. And what do we see? Her excuse me's, if we choose to ignore that behavior, which we're not 100%, okay, I'll be honest, but we try. So if we choose to ignore that behavior and she keeps escalating because maybe we've reinforced it in the past and she's learned if I at least get to this point, they'll give in. Well, no, we're staying the course. We start to see it increase. The excuse me's turn into, excuse me, excuse me, you know. <laughs> what do I see? I'm not going to attend to that behavior. I'm not providing the reinforcement I have historically. We start to see it decrease. Okay, I get it. You're not giving me the attention the way that I want to, the way that I'm seeking it out, but tell me how. There's silence. Excuse me, Daddy. Yes, thank you for waiting until I was done talking, even though I was speaking nonsense language to your mother, right? <laughs> and then we start to see that behavior plateau. The notion of an extinction burst is a critical one because what do I see? Behavior will get worse before it gets better. Most important component, and this is true of adults, Right? Look at any addict. Look at anybody that is trying to change any sort of addictive behavior. Look at anyone um, in marital conflict, anyone that's having difficulty in any sort of relationship. What was reinforced historically? What are we really shining the spotlight on and giving the most attention to? And ultimately, if we start to change the rules and to say, I'm going to attend to something else, something that's more appropriate, that's more functional, that's more meaningful for our family, we are going to see this before we see this. It's going to get worse before it gets better. The reason I like to point this out to parents and I always like to pick up whatever behavior it is that we're working on, that we're going to see it escalate, I even start to map out what it's going to look like. And I would say nine times out of ten, parents come back, they're like, that's exactly what happened. Are you like psychic? <laughs> no. I just understand that in this case, this is how behavior, this behavior principle is very consistent. And so one of the things that we really want to see is what are we doing to teach that child a more appropriate behavior? Extinction burst. Critical, critical thing. And you can look it up. Actually, Wikipedia has a decent definition. I know a lot of it's not that decent there. But, <clears throat> you know, when we, when we look at this process, though, of separation and saying no, and when the child really is trying to establish some, some of that autonomy, right? Give me the ability, once I can start walking, to blaze my own trail. Part of what we really want to do as a parent is to be able to surround them with just enough frustration to where they're going to want to push through to build some of that independence and to really uh, help that persistence grow. And in doing so, I'm creating the sense of what is called optimal frustration, which I think is on your notes, is that I want to provide just enough rope that my child has an opportunity to experience some frustration and be able to problem solve how to get through that. But not so much 
that they feel completely unsupported. That's one of the most difficult tasks of parenting, is giving my child the opportunity to be able to, to do a little bit more. To, and that's the example I gave of the McDonald's slide. You know, for our kids, I didn't automatically jump up in there, I'm coming! You know, we're in McDonald's, right? They're going to be okay. The tunnel doesn't come out on the roof somewhere and then, you know, go. <clears throat> so one of, the, one of the things that we made a point to do is to say, calm down. Your brother's coming up, and he will help you find a way. I like how calm you are. You're doing a great job being calm. What do we see from that moment forward? I have this confidence. I can do this. This was okay. This was not the end of my world. So when we look at this, it's not a perfect process, obviously, right? You know, um, I, I really see that it's also important, and we'll talk a little bit more about this in the, in the yielding piece, and then we'll take a, a short break here in just a little bit, um, is that the importance of authenticity as a parent, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more, is being willing to share the fact that you're not perfect, that I don't have it figured out 100%, that sometimes I'm encountering difficult situations and challenges that I don't always know what to do, but that I can seek God's guidance and that we can pray about together. And obviously we're going to do that in an age-appropriate way, but I'm going to give an example of that as well. But this notion of optimal frustration is a critical, critical piece when you look back at that attachment as well. What I'm trying to do is to help my child see that you can do this, but I'm here to help you whenever you feel frustrated. But you know what? Frustration's okay. Frustration is part of growing and also part of what it means to rely on God. <clears throat> you know, uh, when, when we also see, uh, you know, this example of an extinction burst and this notion of separation and becoming my own person, I have a, a really great example, and after this, we'll, uh, we'll take a, a quick break. Uh, but my son James, and um, <clears throat> he is uh, almost five years old. Well, uh, early in his life, and this was in the throes of chemo and steroids, and I don't know how many of you have been on steroids, not anabolic steroids, but steroids that, uh, you know, that are prescribed by a doctor, um, but they make you a little crazy, a little loopy. And so one of the things that we often saw with him was this just tremendous amount of irrationality that we were obviously guilty of being quite frustrated with, but it really came out in sleep. And uh, you know, sleep is one of the number one things that everybody has an opinion about for their kids. If you start to, to ask people's opinions, they're like, oh, no, 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 your child sleeps in your room? Ooh, that's bad. You know, and you ask, well, why is that, why is that bad? I don't know, but I know it's bad, <laughs> you know. And then conversely, people will say, oh, yeah, my child, as soon as they have a nightmare, they come to our room because we love them, we nurture them, you know, that, that's fine. Oh, your child, you let them cry it out in their room? Ooh, that's bad. That's so bad. <clears throat> Why is that bad? I don't know. Um, but one of the things that we often saw, and I always tell this with parents, is that I don't have, uh, you know, there's no specific research that says that your child can only have sleep patterns this way. I'm saying all of this as a little caveat to tell you a little bit, because I don't want to sound like a monster with what we did with our son. But um, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, one of the things that, uh, you know, pediatricians will often recommend, and Ferber is, uh, you know, one of these that often gives a lot of input, is to, you know, give me two days and I will have your child sleeping in their room on their own blissfully all night long. Well, so we wanted to utilize the Ferber method for James, who was started to wake up 
and you know he's taking medication and we're feeling guilty as parents because we can't help him but we're trying to so he starts to to wake up and then soon it's like right after uh you know early early in the morning um and so we're like okay buddy you know we'll go ahead and take you back upstairs and then it just you know keeps happening well it started to happen like an hour after he went to bed then he was getting up and then it turned into we're going to go put you back in your room while well, i'm darting out and i'm running out just you know like a crazed maniac with like flames coming behind me and you can't get me, I'm not going to sleep in this room. And so he kept doing this more and more, and we were like, we need to stay the course, we need to do the silent return to sleep, and make a point of constantly walking him back, because am I attending to this behavior? I'm worried that we're attending to his behavior, which is increasing his extinction burst of fleeing from his room, seeking to have interaction with us. So we are doing silence, no verbal attention, we will walk him back to his room. Well... Forget about Ferber, okay? <laughs> three days, two to three days turned into two weeks. 21, no, no, it actually three weeks. It was 21 straight days of this occurring. And we're just like exhausted. We're tag teaming where one of us is sleeping upstairs and the other one is sleeping down. So, I mean, our extinction burst was just like, shaka. I mean, it was like up there. And we were just like, you know what? Forget it. We're going to bring a twin bed into our bedroom, and he's just going to sleep there till he's 18. I don't care. I mean, this is ridiculous. I was like, I'll be the biggest hypocrite that's ever walked, you know, the face of the earth related to, you know, working with families, but I don't care. So, but what we ended up seeing is that uh, we ultimately decided to go ahead and put a gate in the doorway with the door being open, but it was a gate that he couldn't hop like a gazelle, you know, in his... So in the final night, and it happened to be my watch, and so when I was there, and we're constantly doing the silent return to sleep, um, and basically you're doubling the time each time before you go back. And uh, I had done, that night I'd started with the five minutes, and then I was doing the 10 minutes, and then I was doing the 20 minutes, and you know, and I'm just sitting here going, if I had hair, it would be out. And then, then I was up to the 40 minutes, and in going back, it was silent. It like 38 minutes. So I was sitting here watching my watch going, I'm almost at 40 minutes and I'm about to cave. Well, then at 38 minutes, it was silent. And I waited. I was like, this may have worked. You know, just praying like, God, please let us have some peace. So I walk in and just I'm like, give no attention whatsoever. I walk in and I look and kind of strewn about outside the gate is, or his pajamas and his diaper, his nighttime diaper. <laughs> So then I kind of scale the little gate and tiptoe in there, and he is just spread eagle on his bed like this, just crashed. So cover him with his blanket, and from that moment forward, he really never consistently had the same type of sleep issue. You know, one of the things and the reason that I like to bring that up is that part of it was is that we had to come to terms as parents to say, we don't it's not a value for us that we want him to sleep in our bedroom. We want him to be independent and to be able to work through his fear and to know that we're there and to know that we're present and we're there to help you, but you can do for yourself. And so all those extinction bursts last forever, and thank goodness we were aligned in this and weren't sabotaging one another because that would absolutely have made it um, even more difficult, is that we learned in that process um, part of what we, I think, really have helped imbued into our child is the capacity to be persistent and to take on challenge and to know that he's okay, but all the while having mom and dad there present with him, walking alongside. Let's go ahead and take a break. 
Can I guess pause at 10 minutes? Do you want to? Okay.